Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Mostly Horror early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everyone. Uh, after recording the intro and outro of this episode, we noticed that there's a little noise in the background that may be annoying uh, when you're listening to it. So if you guys wanted to skip ahead uh, about 15 minutes, our interview has no noise in the background. sounds perfect. Um, but if you guys uh, want to listen to it with a little bit of a, a fan noise in the background, going tick, 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 kind of like the mysterious ticking noise from... Uh, the Harry Potter YouTube days, um, feel free to listen. But we just wanted to throw this quick disclaimer in there. This uh, issue will not be in further episodes, and we're sorry that it is in this one. So thank you guys for listening, and enjoy this episode. We better get back, as it'll be dark soon, and they mostly come at night. Mostly. Welcome to Mostly Horror Movie Night. Mostly. I'm Steve. And I am Sean. And we are back with another episode. Uh, this week we have an interview episode, which we've been planning for quite some time, um, with Vincenzo Natalie. Um, Sean, Sean, he did Cube. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, he, he did, did Cube. Uh, if you guys are listening to this, you haven't seen Cube, um, go, see go Cube. watch it. It's yeah. it's cool. Vincenzo's been, been making movies for like 20 plus years. So he has Cube. He has Splice. He has Cypher. He did the Stephen King adaptation Into the Tall Grass, which is on Netflix now. And he's also directed um, a bunch of episodes of a bunch of fairly large shows. All sorts of shit, guys. Just so much stuff. So Um, much stuff. We've we've been wanting to talk to him um, for a while, and we've had to put off the interview. And we finally got to chat with him, so it's a great one. Um, Mm -hmm. But as always... There's some things that we wanted to talk about last week, some some news that's probably not news by the time you guys are going to hear this, but we wanted to talk about it anyways. Well, honestly, it might even be news because it, what I'm learning is that there's so much shit, Steve. There's there's so many things coming out that I, I can't keep up. Like, I'm trying to figure out this is supposed to be our job. I got, This is hard. There is so much stuff coming out, which is a good problem to have. But uh, yeah. 
you know, stuff that we, we might have kind of talked about before, uh, stuff that we haven't. I, I, there's no way that we can even jump into all of them right now. But there's, I just found it literally seconds ago. I, I want to jump right into this one because it, these two things, actually. So okay. first, I'm going to start by saying that apparently we're getting a The Strangers 3. Says who? Did you freeze or are you just staring at me because no. you feel the way I feel? Says who? Who said that? I'm looking at an article by Brad Miska on Bloody Disgusting. And it yeah. says... Who's like the owner of Bloody Disgusting, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, he, he co-founded it, yep. Got you. Um, the It says, The Strangers, three new sequels in production next month. Um, question mark, exclamation mark, exclusive. Uh, and yeah, it's it's just talking about how that is a thing that's apparently happening. I guess it, I don't know how much. It says, I think the next three are in production next month. The next three? Wait, what do you mean the next three? Three new sequels? Like they're just going to keep know. it going? Yeah, so this it sounds like this was um, Roy Lee, who is the producer. He produced uh, The Ring, Poltergeist remake, Blair Witch, and It from uh, the 2017 It. Um, he's the producer of Barbarian, which is the new film that's coming out soon. And so it sounds like he was on the Boo Crew podcast, and he was talking to them about a Stranger sequel. Or, like, they asked about a Stranger sequel, and he said, I think the next three are in production next month with another filmmaker that people will know. What? So. What? I, why? Brad Miska also calls The Strangers Pray at Night criminally criminally underrated. Yeah. Which, which... I, can't, I can't speak to because I haven't seen it. I know that, I mean, obviously we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. <laughs> no, we we hold uh, the original Strangers at a very high regard. Oh. I mean, as one of the best horror films. Um, so, you know, the sequel, I know you don't love it, and I know that I haven't seen it. No, and that comes um, from... So, that is a movie, the, the first Strangers I saw, not in theaters, but, like, right when it came out, you know, uh, mm-hmm. very, I guess not crazy, crazy early into my love of the genre, but more formative years than now uh mm-hmm. and it blew my my mind it i i love that movie with my entire heart i loved it from the first time i saw it and i think that one of the best things about that movie is how you never get any answers you never see their faces you just see them drive away and it very much so hints at like it leaves you with this how many times have they done this how many times will mm-hmm. they do this and the sequel just it feels different in in everything from just like mood the way it's shot like color correction uh like i for lack of a better way to describe this just like texture of the image like everything Mm -hmm. about the movie feels different and mask or not their logic was just you put new actors in mask and it's it's fine um and that's Mm -hmm. just not true you can tell that every single killer is different and that's not to take anything from the new, you know, the actors that, that gave performances in the sequel, but it just wasn't the same. And this is, it's just not a movie that ever needed a sequel. So to find out that they're not only milking it for more, but just th- like three, like why? It just, the, yeah. the the sequel felt confused in terms of its audience. Like it was trying to fit in with, with horror, like slasher type things that were coming out at the time. And this, at least from Five this quick... Ago 
yeah, uh, this quick read over, it almost sounds like, okay, so now we're just going to milk what like Fear Street is doing um, or mm-hmm. like try to feel like Fear Street. We can do the same sort of thing. And uh, I don't know. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. This, this isn't, isn't the franchise to do this with. What if it's prequels? It, even then i just don't need answers i don't need background yeah. i don't need and i it's not just that i don't need them i think that it weakens i think when i recommend that movie you know me i've said like i'm down for honestly i'm, I'm more okay with remakes than i am sequels to things and yeah. i'm fine with either because my logic still stands for the most part of the original film is still left the way it was but you know if people people for the first time see the strangers now and they jump right into the sequel and that's kind of their narrative of, of those characters like it's just such a different experience than the 10 the decade you know that we had with just that first movie which in my i just can't imagine any other experience than that being more powerful if that makes sense yeah um, no i agree yeah. i think uh the only you know proper step to go from here is to try to get Roy Lee um, on, try to get him on the podcast and talk about what the fuck's going on. And talk him out of it. Hey. Yeah. Stop that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that's, uh, that's interesting. We'll see, you know, we'll see where, where it goes from here. Yeah. Um, What was the other thing that you just found out? Oh, dude. Okay. So this, this is another one. Also, I apologize for my having no clue what I'm talking about, but a, you guys aren't new to this. Uh, and B, um, this is what happens when you find articles minutes before you uh, you jump on that, that take over the other articles you were going to talk about. Mm-hmm. But um, apparently, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem coming to theaters summer 2023. It is an animated... Is animated? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, announced this afternoon. And by this afternoon, I mean one whole last week ago so on august 4th <laughs> august 4th uh announced this afternoon um the brand new animated tmnt movie has officially titled has been officially titled teenage mutant ninja turtles mutant mayhem and is releasing in exactly one year um let's see uh jeff Rowe, uh the mitchells versus the machines is directing the teenage mutant ninja turtles movie uh, interesting it's produced by the boys duo seth rogan and evan goldberg and evan goldberg yep uh, okay that's Brendan an O'Brien team. is writing the screenplay with plot details under wraps um interesting yeah dude uh and this is i don't know the the poster thing that they put out for it makes me very excited it almost feels did you ever watch this i'm posing this question to all of the listeners as well as you did you guys watch uh, the short uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated thing that Jonan, uh, Jonan Vasquez did a few years ago? Uh, I think you showed it to me. It's And awesome. I've also seen the Michael Bay yeah. movie. <laughs> it was when... <laughs> I just watched the first one for the first time like a week and a half, two weeks ago. Uh, I didn't love it. It was fine. It, mm. it wasn't very good at all. Why, you, why does every shot have to be dynamic, Michael? I don't get it. Um, yeah. But... So Jonan Vasquez did a take on a new animated, you know, visual look and feel mm-hmm. just overall for uh, for our heroes in a half shell. And I loved it. But then I think he was pitching it to Nickelodeon or something. And then they ended up going with a different thing. And then we got the latest series that we got, which is still yeah. I don't want to dog on it. I haven't seen it. But visually, for my taste, 
I didn't like it stylistically as much as I like Jonin. Um, right. But I'd probably bias. Uh, but yeah. So I don't know. I just saw that and was like, that's cool. So I've never been a TMNT guy, so it's like not like. That's fair. Know, um, it's cool. I'll, you can I'll, just I'll cowabunga watch the cool fuck on people. out of here, dude. Yeah, if cool people are attached to it, like the Mitchells and the Machines guy yeah. and uh, Seth Rogen and, and Evan Goldberg have been killing it on really anything that they produce, so sure. I'm definitely down for it, um, especially if it's an animated film coming to theaters. So, Yeah, yeah. So it, I'm just hoping that we get something like a fresh, new, I don't know. I, the You can take the Turtles and keep spinning them a million different ways forever in my opinion um i'm not a a huge 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 uh you know turtles fan or anything but i'm definitely a a fan i would say that i very much so enjoy a lot of the most of the turtle content that i've consumed in my life chelsea can you please put in the i like turtles um (laughs) sounds like right here i like turtles um yeah i feel like that fit perfectly um was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Those two, well, so, I feel, felt like there was a lot. We can, we yeah. can do some lightning rounds. Well, yeah, so this is what I'm going to say. Uh, and I can't even break down everyone. It was my plan last week to kind of have us kind of go into things mm-hmm. a bit more. But I'm just going to bring all of these things to to our attention, I guess, if we want to jump into any of them, we can. But other things that I know are coming out. Uh, Allegoria that has Scout Taylor Compton in it. Uh, Gone in the Night with Winona Ryder. Um, new movie that just came out on Shudder called What Josiah Saw. Uh, yeah. Uh, Hypochondriac, which feels very Donnie Darko. Um, I wish I could give you directors for all of these, but I can't right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Resurrection um, with Rebecca Hall. With Rebecca Hall. Yeah, yep. that just came out in the theaters. That was uh, yeah. that did pretty well at Sundance and got a pretty good reception. Uh, I think it's in theaters. I mean, we could probably go see it in New I, York right now. I don't know how widespread it is. And then they slash them. And I'm pretty sure all of those came out like last week. Is what yeah, I was they saying. slash like, them is on Peacock. Yeah. Now, um, and yeah, Resurrection is out. I, I didn't realize the rest of those were out, but yeah, Resurrection has, is the one that I've heard the most about, um, and it's probably in it's probably a limited release. But I know that Shutter's getting the streaming release of Resurrection yeah. when it goes to streaming, which is nice. cool. Dude, I've yeah. just been sitting here trying to catch up on the fucking boys, and I still got Sandman to watch, like. This is hard. This is speaking of Seth Rogen and Adam Goldberg also yeah. produced the boys, so that makes yes. sense. Yes, yeah. Which, by the way, yeah, the boys. Whew. The boys is so good. so good. Um, yeah, there's definitely a lot to watch, and we're trying to keep up. One other thing I want to mention: we didn't talk about it. I don't think we talked about it because we just talked about bodies, bodies, bodies. Sean and I watched Prey. Yeah, um, we did. Prey is the biggest. Uh, we'll call it opening weekend release. In Hulu history, um, it is absolutely killing it on Hulu. It's getting a great critical reception. Um, I know I enjoyed it. It's probably my favorite Predator movie that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no, no, like, um, slight fucking to... yeah, no slight, <laughs> no shade to the original. Um, sure. But yeah, I you know, it's it was fun. It was an interesting concept. And honestly, I've just seen a bunch of tweets saying, like, let's take these characters and, you know, that everyone loves that you just see in the same fucking situations over and over again and put them in these different scenarios. You know what I mean? Like, I agree. I think it would be super sick. Like, 
you know, maybe the canon of Freddy doesn't allow him to be in, you know, 16th century Britain, but, like, fucking run with it, man. You know what I'm saying? Well, dude, so basically what we're seeing with with media right now is obviously there's more media being produced than ever before yeah. like ever before and if we're talking specifically like movies and shows and stuff it's getting to a point and we're we're so big on um revisiting you know studios are obviously yeah, really big characters. on working yeah it's it's just turning into yeah did you hear about the three stranger sequels that are coming out <laughs> <laughs> it's turning into comics it's turning into like at this point yeah just fucking just make weird movies like shit like freddy versus jason just take characters who gives a shit about canon after a certain point like if you want to just have some fun have some fun but make it like you know put your heart into it but make it good but yeah if you want to like reimagine something do it and i think that we as an audience need to anyone that's gonna like freak out at stuff like that like get over it and, yeah, be open your mind to new shit, man. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So. I also want to say Dan Trachtenberg, who's the director of Prey, is phenomenal. Um, oh, yeah. Like, it was like, I I knew going into Prey that I was going to enjoy it because I like mm-hmm. his work. Like, 10 Cloverfield Lane is a great movie, and he directed the best horror episode of Black Mirror, which is called Playtest. That's my um, favorite. Starring Wyatt Russell. Yep. Um, phenomenal episode. He's just He's just a great director. And so I was yeah. like, you know, no no question his episode was going to be great um but yeah i feel like we didn't mention prey and i just wanted to make sure that we didn't leave it you know yep i actually didn't even say anything about it yet i will just say that i also had a ton of fun with it predator is not a i've said this before i think but Predator's not a um you know a franchise that i like revisit all the time yeah i've I've seen (laughs) plenty of them i like them but they're not like my absolute favorite but if i'm at a especially if i'm you know if it's like friends hanging out having a couple beers and someone throws on predator like fuck yeah any of the movies like literally an avp i don't give a shit like i'm down um but i'm not chasing and making sure that i have the entire franchise in my collection or anything personally i think i had more fun um with prey in terms of watching it like alone we Mm. watched it together but if i were to watch all the predator movies alone i would have the most fun with prey uh yeah yeah i think i i enjoyed it the most it was just cool also out here with a freaking bone tomahawk just and the predator design yeah and this was so cool like yeah it's it is definitely worth a watch guys worth a few watches (laughs) um that being said though we have a great interview with uh vincenzo natali sean any final thoughts before we get into that interview he was great um it's, I don't know why. I think we said this before. I hope he doesn't hear this and take this in any sort of bad way because it's not. <laughs> but uh, it's just interesting because we watched um, we watched the movie and after talking to him, he's just not... I don't know that I necessarily had a vision of what he was going to be like in my head. But every now and again, you meet someone and you kind of... Or you know you're going to be interviewing someone and you have this idea of what they might be like. And he was just so not what I thought he'd be like. Um, yeah, well, it's uh, like his his films are all... They have this science fiction. You know, they're all... Mm-hmm. I won't say all of them, but, like, he seems to gravitate towards sci-fi horror. You know, sure. horror f- with a sci- uh, sci-fi twist. And I kind of pictured him as this, like, mad scientist sort of guy <laughs> who is really into... And he's... He's a he's a phenomenal intellectual and and you know we were talking about psychology of, of horror 
um, directors and horror fans from almost the onset of this interview. But yeah, um, yeah, I imagined him as this like you know mad scientist, and he's you know such a such a nice uh, soft spoken guy. So it was fun. I think that what I'm realizing is that tell me if this makes sense. Cube feels like it should be filled with new metal to me. And I thought he was yeah. just gonna love new metal. Like I thought I was gonna get a new metal <laughs> vibe from him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in the best way. And uh but no, he was it, it was great to talk to him. He was uh he's clearly very passionate and very uh educated on the genre. Um he's been super experienced, been working in it for years. Cube is great, you know, he he made a cult classic. Um he's worked on some of our favorite shows. And uh, it's a great conversation, and I, I hope that we get to have him back. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Um, on that note, we will get you guys over to our interview with Vincenzo Natali. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today, using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, we are joined today by Vincenzo Natali. Vincenzo is a writer and director known for his films Cube, In the Tall Grass, Cypher, and Splice. He's also directed episodes of widely renowned shows such as The Stand, Lock and Key, Westworld, Hannibal, and The Strain. Vincenzo, thank you for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. This is so nice. <laughs> Absolutely. We're, we're excited. I know that we talked about this a little bit before, but we've had to kind of reschedule a couple of times uh, that we wanted to chat with you. So it's good to finally get you on the podcast, finally talk about some things. Um, because you have uh, you have you have a wide array of things that you've worked on, so we're excited to really dive into a, a good number of them. Yeah. Um, before though, I know that we we just mentioned this, but it's all it's always good to have another uh, another Michigander on the show. <laughs> I know that you said your your memory of Michigan's not too uh, you know you don't have a lot of uh, memory of it, but it's still it's fine on our yeah. on our account. The, the seed was planted yes. there. So. Like I said, that's we all that still matters. claim you, like I said. So. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> For better or worse. <laughs> if you're born in Michigan, you're from Michigan, yeah. that's all that matters. Um, but yeah, so, you know, we you've you've obviously been making films in the horror genre for, for quite some time. Um, and you, you, your first film was Cube that, that got, you know, uh, a lot of um, notoriety worldwide. But can you kind of talk about 
your intro to the horror genre. Like everyone has those first moments, the fo- one of those first movies that they saw that really sparked it for them uh, becoming a horror fan. You know, c- can you pinpoint what your first horror memory was? I, you know, I'm as silly as it sounds. I feel like it's genetic. <laughs> like I feel <laughs> some there's like some protein strand in my DNA that makes me like horror because my earliest I have no living memory of not liking it okay I mean any kind of image of a monster or anything like that I was attracted to from the earliest possible age um and my son is the same so without my without my encouragement so I do I think there's a horror gene but um but I do remember you know I'm of a vintage (laughs) that uh Grew up with famous monsters in the 70s mm-hmm. and then early 80s. And so I feel like the universal horror films were, you know, really important. And in fact, there was a repertory theater, movie theater in here in Toronto growing up that my mom would take me to. And every Tuesday night, they'd have an Abbott, that will feature Abbott Costello. And then they would have a universal horror nice. film. Nice. So I got to see all, you know, the great universal horror pictures that way. So I, I feel like that was sort of my foundational horror experience. Um, and then, you know, later I grew up with Stephen King, mm-hmm. um, Edgar Allan Poe pretty early on. Um, so it's just, yeah. That, sure. That, I think, yeah, that's sort of the, the early, and then horror comics, of course, because I was okay. Okay. naturally a comic book nerd. Um, so Bernie Wrightson, Swamp Thing. Yes. Those kinds of things. That was too, too old for, um, EC, you know, that had long since passed, but there were all of the sort of ancestors of EC, like Creepy and Eerie and mm-hmm. um, uh, House of Secrets and, you know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of things like that. Do you have, do you have a favorite universal monster? Like one of the, one of those first uh, monsters that you saw that really drew you in or was it, was it just like a, an overall thing that you were interested in? I, I uh, I think Frankenstein probably was the one. I mean, it remains. I just feel like those films are so yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And they're the ones that I had the most vivid reaction to and memory of. But I love, I saw a creature, actually, I saw a creature from Black Lagoon in a movie theater in 3D. I'm so jealous of that. Um, I had a very, I had, I saw these films theatrically, actually, oddly. I didn't really see them on TV so much. Um, so they, and they're fantastic. You know, you look at them now and they, they don't really age. Uh, no. Timeless. They're just they're just beautiful. Yeah. They are timeless. timeless. Is it was it always a uh, you know creature flicks that really drew you in, or were you were you just drawn to like everything spooky kind of in general, like killer killers and ghosts and other things, or was it always were you always focused on the monster? You seem like a monster nut. <laughs> I'm yeah, I'm a monster person. I've never been uh, into slasher films. I mean, I I think, and I that's a very I feel like that is an abused subgenre in terms of what Mm -hmm. that umbrella the umbrella of the slasher film encompasses um so i mean obviously there are movies that i do like like halloween very much Mm -hmm. um but to me that's almost a monster movie i I don't know i somehow i'm drawn to i think i'm just not as interested in reality yeah no that's fair (laughs) i uh uh, i I like i like when i like it when there's an element of the fantastical Mm -hmm. um uh, yeah, so I'm the thing guy. Okay, yeah, it's... that's that's fair. Yeah, I'm very that's... much into the thing. Yeah. Invasion of the Body Snatchers was the, I'm the original one I remember seeing before the Philip Kaufman remake mm-hmm. in 1978, I think. So I was familiar with that early on, and then the remake. I think that movie terrified me 
more than any other I've ever it's seen. Unsettling. <laughs> it is unsettling. <laughs> I threw it on uh, like a couple months ago for the first time in a long time, and it is when you have uh, just some of like the kind of like melting and the weird flesh things that they do. Like like oh, oh. it's just like when they're all laying in the field. You know what I mean? Or like laying in the grass. Like I don't know. It's a uh, Stuff like that still gets under my skin, and I've been watching horror movies nonstop for 19 years, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. it, so when that dog man shows mm-hmm. up, I, even to this day, I know it's just a rubber mask on the dog, but I, it gives me chills. Yeah. Yeah, it was very – and that was um, – I know David Cronenberg's work preceded it, but I didn't know those films. So that was kind of my first – That pro, now that I think about it, it really was my first introduction to body horror. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yep. I mean, actually, the 1950s one has an element of that as well, but it's obviously not as, um, you know, grotesque yeah, and sure. as uh, explicit. Are you are you a big uh, are you a big Cronenberg fan? I know I know one thing. You know, watching Cube for the first time, and we do want to talk about Cube, but I I noticed that you're hit with uh, compared to the feel of the whole movie, you're hit with some body horror early on in the movie um so are you a Cronenberg guy like was that you know someone that you latched on to oh yeah yeah and then I think that was enhanced by the fact that he is native to Toronto sure uh yeah, um, makes sense yeah somehow but you know just his I mean I think he I think I'm I'm a, I mean I don't want to make the comparison I don't I don't deserve to make the comparison to him but I uh I don't think I think I'm a very different kind of filmmaker. So I've, I've never mm-hmm. minded people drawing those comparisons because at the end of the day, we're just very different. Like I think, I think a different, I'm excited by different kinds of things than he is. Yeah. But having said that, I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of his interviews. Like I, I actually, I think I enjoy the way he speaks of his films almost as much as the movies themselves, That's because he's just so highly intelligent and perceptive and, you know, such an original thinker. And um, so, yeah, but he, he was and remains one of my, my favorites. Absolutely. Did you, did you see Crimes of the Future? Have you seen I Crimes did. of the Future? Yeah, okay. What did you think of it? Uh, I liked it <laughs> a lot. Um, yeah, no, I thought it was very nice. I really liked his detour into kind of noir mm-hmm. with um, History of Violence. And um, I enjoyed seeing him kind of go into a different space, but then... Mm-hmm. it's really nice to see him return to what he does that is, you know, entirely his creation and no other person could have made this film. It's obvious from the first frame yep. on. Um, and, and I just think even though it was written, apparently written 20 years ago, uh, it just seems of this moment. I'm sort of glad that it was delayed or, you know, he didn't approach it until this time because I really feel like it's, relevant to where we are now and um and you know typically of him kind of taking on some of the issues environmental issues and so on that we face in a way that no one else would and it's very unexpected and kind of morally ambiguous um so yeah you know just as provocative and as you would you would hope but the only thing i thought i don't know if you guys have seen it but is uh i just wanted more of it it's like one of the rare occasions where a film ended too soon, right? Especially these days, I find most movies kind of outstay their welcome. But that movie, um, I could have used another 10, 15 minutes of. Okay. 
Yeah, I also feel like it's one of those things where it's like we haven't had a Cronenberg Cronenberg film for so long that one comes out and it's like just what's your whistle sort of yeah. thing, you know? Like that's yeah. it, much much to your point. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, so, so oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say um, you talked a bit about uh, you know like your your intros to horror and stuff. Uh, I guess this is kind of a two part question. I'm I'm always curious when I find out that people just always loved it. Uh, a, d- were you frightened? during like during that love for it and you were excited by or like by that fear or were you just it never really got under your skin and also with that how did that love um if you wanted to kind of lead us into how it kind of turned into your your career how you started making movies and how early you knew you wanted to get into and be a part of that process if that makes sense i know that was kind of all over the place yeah (laughs) sure no 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 well i think you know there i have to ask myself those questions because I don't know if I have a clear answer. I I mean, I think everyone likes to be afraid mm-hmm. that we all like to be pushed to that place. That's just, you know, innate and kind of universal. But I'm not sure that that's really what draws me to the genre. Um, I mean, that's not the, the prime motivator. I feel like it has more to do with any way relating to the monster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is a kind of outsider's genre and um, a transgressive, subversive genre. And um, there's just something innate in the imagery to me that's just, for whatever reason, excites me. Yeah. And I, I, it's, it's hard to, um, to pinpoint that. And I don't know, I could do like a lot of self-analysis. I was a very um, empathetic child. I intensely empathized across I remember crying watching the gong show because when someone was gong like I was very <laughs> um and then you know it's interesting to discover later on oh you know a lot of people who make horror films or write horror fiction are like that they're highly empathetic so I don't know maybe there's something there I I, I don't want to it's most right. dangerous <laughs> to go there um but I, I think I'm drawn yeah I'm just I'm drawn to that space I, it's funny when I work on my own films I'm not overly excited by the prospect of scaring other people that doesn't as a filmmaker that just always feels feels like it's a little bit mechanical that's not the reason to do it it's yeah. but i am excited by taking other people and myself to strange sure. places and yeah. um you know and let's face it the world is horrific yeah. i think there's just some component to well i think this essential part of horror is in a safe space, finding a way to process the real horror of the world. And, um, yeah. Yep. So yep. all of those yeah, things. Yeah, to have, to have the hard conversations to, to process it, uh, and to almost like recontextualize certain things. Like it's, yeah, a hundred percent. I also do find that, uh, people that really, at least from, from bits I've seen, I know that like even Del Toro has talked about it, but it seems like people that are real, like monster movie fans that, that grew up with that love those are the ones that a big part of it for them is is identifying with the monster i know that that's that's pretty common throughout the genre um because like you were saying i, I think mm-hmm. a lot of us are it's kind of like the outsider sort of thing but i just find it, it really interesting that the people that love monster movies seem to pull that statement out <laughs> a lot yeah at least in the yeah i, I guess it, may, no, it yeah. makes sense it we makes should bring sense, a psychologist on the show <laughs> yeah you that would be yeah. a great idea I, I i mean and let's face it horror is innately cinematic mm-hmm. like it's if you look at the silent era 
there were horror films. Yeah. You know, it, it has something. There's is a. It seems like cinema is like the ideal medium to tell those stories. Not the mm -hmm. only one, but like it, it really those two things go together very well because it's such a visceral, experiential kind of thing. So I think that's part of it too. It's exciting to make horror films because you're really using the medium. Like to, to do it properly, you have to use cinematography, lighting, editing, all yeah. those things yes. in an aggressive way that you might not necessarily with like a drama or a comedy, not to say that you wouldn't in those cases, but, but horror demands it. Like I think yes, that's, exactly. um, so it's really, you know, as a filmmaker, it's, it's fun because you are, you are very present and I love, I love very present in the, in the making of the movie. And I love movies where I feel the presence of the filmmaker. It's part mm -hmm. of the reason I like horror and suspense films because I like the un, the unspeaking, the, the, to feel the unspeaking narrator guiding things, you know? So yes. if you watch a Hitchcock film or you watch a Argento movie or a De Palma film or a Carpenter movie, like they have, so those voices, their voices are so clear and captivating um i think that's partly what drew me to it as well is just to because i was inspired by them and because that was a way you know to use my voice yeah, yeah absolutely i know so to to kind of segue you were saying you don't you know your your intention isn't you're not thinking about how am i, how am I going to scare people you're thinking about putting them in a place where they may not have been before putting them in a different you know surrounding the different environment um, Cube is a phenomenal example of that. Obviously, it's you know your first film that really caught on with a lot of um, people around the world. Um, can you kind of? I'm sure you've answered this question, you know, ad nauseum. But can you kind of talk about the the inception of of Cube, where that idea was born? Um, you know, when you're creating that first feature. I mean, it's the stupidest answer because it was just pragmatism. I just needed to, you know, I knew my first feature film was going to have to be a very low budget affair probably self-financed and i was looking for one room ideas but i didn't like the idea of telling a story like a play in one space right and then i had this little flash oh well what if i can reuse the room like what if one room plays as many rooms and then i can actually have my characters moving and have you know make it cinematic and dynamic but still work with this cheap set and and so that's what it's me to think oh well, what if so if, if it's a you know multiple rooms and all identical well maybe it's like a maze of identical rooms and therefore a symmetrical rate maze and therefore a cube mm -hmm. and so on and so on so um yeah i was uh, but the you know the writing a process of cube which was done with one of my oldest friends and my roommate at the time felt very much like um i was would say like archaeology like we okay. we had sort of come across this thing buried in the sand and we were slowly unearthing it rather than creating it. Like we kind of, you know, in an idiotic way, accidentally rediscovered Cartesian space. <laughs> like we, <laughs> we were, we were sort of, you know, backing into concepts that already existed that we didn't really know that much about. And um, yeah, it was, it was a very special thing. I, re I realized early on that it was a, I have to say a great idea, you know, that I had kind of, stumbled on something very special and partly because I couldn't really think of any existing templates for it. Like it didn't, um, you know, we looked at prison, we actually looked at prison break movies. That was kind of our, when we were just trying to sort of figure out the story, like we were 
we weren't referencing science fiction or horror films at all. Really, it was it was things like Escape from Alcatraz and yep. um, Papillon and stuff like that. Um, yep. So yeah, it was. But it, yeah, it just came from interesting. You know, wanting, being, wanting to make doing the Orson Welles thing, like wanting to make a movie by the age of twenty six, and how do I yeah. do it? Yeah. That is. It's funny because we like you know Sean and I have seen Cube a couple of times, but we we rewatched it in preparation for this. And one of the things is just like, you know, from the get go, as the movie kind of picks up pace, you're just like, having this one set is such a smart idea. And I know it, it's it's you know necessity is the mother of invention, but it's just like you're you 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 had that one set and you used it in such a smart way. And you know talking before about uh, how. You know, you need to be aggressive with your cinematography and aggressive with uh, all the different technical aspects of horror filmmaking. Like, really, the cinematography and the way that you shoot the whole film uh, lends itself to, you know, being okay with just having one set. Like, you're not, it's not like you're filming every room, quote unquote, room the same way. Um, you're, you're approaching one room from the top, approaching one room from the side, that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, it really is like, it, it really is. Uh, like perfect resourcefulness it's, um oh, yeah. absolutely no it creates this um i loved how it it creates this sense of you, you get both the sense of like claustrophobia while at the same time like it, there's this like the the horror of that but then the horror of like endlessness it's like you get both at the same time mm-hmm. um using that like that structure i don't know i just thought that that was that was brilliant and we were talking about it too we were like what a great way to go about telling a big story with one with one little space um oh thank you well yeah it's an interesting thing i find i mean i i you know i've become a prisoner of my own cube in a way because um i keep making these films that are (laughs) one setting and trapped about (laughs) being trapped and i partly because you know once you've done something like that that's worked then it makes it easier to to get financing for other things that are similar people go oh yeah you can do that Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think I'm drawn to those sorts of stories and, uh, for various reasons. And, um, but also there is a thrill to, it's like, um, you know, uh, like a one man show on Broadway mm-hmm. or something like when you have so little to work with and you make more out of it than the audience could expect that there's something thrilling about that, not just it somebody watching it but also somebody making it because you're like well how do i reinvent this one space mm-hmm. um over and over and over how do i reinvent this one idea and and sometimes you know that can be more freeing and inspiring than if you have a blank page and a blank check um yeah so yeah it's 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 interesting i i keep and you know i mean for instance i've been writing something recently and it was quite I mean, I just keep, I'm so stupid. I keep having to learn the same lesson again, but it had a, a, you know, I don't want to say what it is, but I was writing something that was very expansive. Mm -hmm. And, and I, and I think it was about, it was trying to do too much. Mm -hmm. And, and I finally think I, I hope I've cracked it simply just by like making it very simple and very contained. And, um, and then it makes you focused. And, and actually I must say that, in the writing of the script for Cube, it was not me, but my dear friend, Andre Bajelic, who grasped that the cleverness of the idea was its simplicity. That mm-hmm. the, yeah, I had written something 
I usually go to Baroque. Like I just want everything. So I wrote with that concept, a kind of Terry Gilliam-ish, nightmarish thing that was, mm-hmm. it was the, that idea, but there were more characters and it was more fantastical and a little more absurd. And and my my friend read it and he was like, well, you know, you have a very interesting idea here, but the script's not that great. <laughs> I don't know. If he, you know he, said, he probably did say that. But he, he said, you know, what's great about this idea is, is like, it's just these people and all they have are their minds, their whatever physical mm-hmm. ability they have and the clothes on their back. That's what's exciting. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, and I immediately knew he was right. And that's how we reapproached the whole thing. And that really was, you know, um, kind of the driving uh, notion throughout the whole writing and filmmaking process. So yeah, it's all, it's funny with art. I, often it's a case of stripping things yeah. away. Oh, you yeah. got to, my teacher, I went to uh, college for creative studies in uh, in Detroit, Michigan, and I remember the the concept of killing your puppies being introduced to me, um, and just like having all these precious things in your story that you think are so great because you're just so excited to build and build, and then yeah, just having to cut things down and you know have people come in and be like, but why do you need this? And and it's too much, and figure out what the core thing is. Which is hard, like as, as you know, as any sort of creative, I feel like for any medium, uh, you know, you just keep wanting to add things onto it, and sometimes the hardest thing isn't coming up with new things to do to it; it's it's figuring out how to stop and how to relax. <laughs> it's, it's the hardest thing. So yeah. true. Yeah. You know, it's funny that made me think back to Escape from Alcatraz, which is a Don Siegel film who directed the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Make it full circle, but there's a, a story that when they were making that film, Clint Eastwood had this speech about his childhood. It was like a very long, intense speech. And they, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, they weren't happy with it while they were shooting it. And and I may be getting this wrong, but I, I think it was Clint Eastwood came up with the notion of, well, when the character asks, when the other character asked him, what was your childhood like? He just said, short. That was it. <laughs> Boom. One moving, word. Moving along. So much better than a speech of like, you know, I yeah. this and that, this happened to me. Just short. So yeah. it's, I think it's a good, it's, you know, it's just good screenwriting um, yeah. advice. Yeah. And also not to, not to spoil a, an over 20 year old film, but like Cube, you know, it, it's one of those films that doesn't need explanation like it doesn't need you don't have a you know uh, a reason why at the beginning you don't have anything in terms of a a resolution to where are they at the end you know what i mean like you're it's it's really just experiencing this moment with these characters which i know it's one of sean's like favorite yes. things in a film that you can do he doesn't need you know reason he just wants to experience things with characters so cube is really mm-hmm. one of those those great ones where you don't you know you don't get answers that you're looking for, and yeah. that's fine. You know what I mean? It's, it's I've said it before on the show. I honestly get kind of frustrated sometimes. Like, like ex- exhibition can be great. You know, like like, get, like learning all the details can be a lot of fun, and figuring out why can be fun for the right story. But sometimes it just seems like a lot of people think that every story needs to explain everything at the end, and sometimes that kills it for me. Like, just leave me <laughs> kind of having no idea what's going on, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, so. Totally, I think finally Hollywood's coming around to it. I remember with the quiet place mm-hmm. they didn't really explain anything or not very much. They just kind of, because who cares? Yeah. And, yeah. um, but I remember when we were making our film, Oh, so many years ago, that was the problem. Like we, we took it out and there were some small companies mm-hmm. that were 
interested, but everyone wanted this. They want to know, well, what is it? And we're like, well, anything we come up with is going to be disappointing. There's yeah. never, we just felt yeah. like if we had a brilliant, exciting revelation, then I, we would have used it. But I don't think there, there was one or ever could be one that was as grand or as intriguing as the puzzle itself. Yeah. So we resolved to be unambiguous about how the puzzle functions and how it's solved, but to be entirely ambiguous about its purpose. Yeah. And then that kind of becomes the point. It's like, well, and then it makes it a metaphor because that's sort of what life is really like. Nobody knows why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what you have to deal with. You know, it's like very, I mean, yeah, I guess another thing we were thinking about at the time was no exit, the Sartre play. So, mm-hmm. you know, we went, we went full metal existentialist yeah. on this. Like, <laughs> yeah. like these people are dropped in this situation. They don't know why there's no God. There's <laughs> no one to, to comfort yes. them and say, this is what you have to do. You, you just have to figure it out. And um, maybe because there's a culture around gaming now and that kind of thing, that that might be the reason why I think people are more comfortable with that. But I also feel like it's the reason why the movie has yet to be remade in America, because I, I'm convinced, I don't know, this is just my conjecture, but I'm convinced mm-hmm. that like when they sit down in a room with the executives, they're like, okay, what's the pitch? Nobody has a very good explanation for what it is and they all feel like they have to have that and that's why it could never be a mainstream movie and that's really why it was made in film school yeah you know rather than traditional method so there's a that kind of brings me into a couple things sorry if i if i tie them together my brain tends to do that but um (laughs) but so there there is a japanese remake um and I, I thought that there were talks of an American one. I don't know if that's still up in the air or, or anything or how much you're even allowed to say about anything like that. I'm, I'm not involved with it okay. at all. So uh, I'll, I, I know that I keep hearing, like it sort of emerges every once in a while. I think John Spates was involved with it at one time, the writer a few years back, and then it kind of went away. And then I think, I think again, this is just purely conjecture on my part, because, but I think because of Squid Games, it makes sense because I have I have I have friends, younger filmmaker friends, who were like asked to pitch for it. So I know okay. I know that Lionsgate was looking to do it. Whether that I I haven't heard yeah. anything, so I I kind of suspect it has kind of gone away. But um, yeah. you were you, you really quick uh, you talking about not having anything to do with it. Um, always, I'm so curious about this all the time. I guess it kind of goes into the killing puppies thing and, and the emotional attachments that we have to our work and stuff. But how does it? What is it like to have written this this story with you know your you said your college roommate to have made this movie? It's built this cult following. You know, it's a it's a staple in the genre at this point. And then to have like other people build onto that world to, to make other movies or to know that a remake might happen and, and to like kind of let it go. What is, what is your thoughts and feelings about that? You know, I'm very comfortable with that. Like I don't, um, I mean, I, 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 I feel it's my child. So I, I, and, <laughs> and I like it, you know? So I, I mean, I, I also see all like, just like a child, I see all of its flaws too. Right. Um, but, but it really, the movie itself means much a great deal to me. I'm excited by other people yeah. doing things with it. Um, I think that's great. I, my only note of sort of cynicism about it is I've, I've never really felt that you could, there's a lot of stories to tell 
in the cube. Yeah. Like I've always felt it's like Jaws, you know, it's this very singular kind of story, which is why I never wanted to be involved with the sequels because I couldn't see how you do it without it being just sort of a, you know, thinly disguised remake. Yeah. Um, you know, and then the Jaws movies are like yeah. that too. They're basically the same thing over and over. Um, so, and if anyone were to come up with the idea, it wouldn't be me. Um, cause I'm just sure. too close to it. So, but I'm excited when people do it. And I've my, in fact, one of the great sort of surprises and disappointments associated with cube for me is that nobody's made a video game. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. even think about that. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> what a, what a great idea. Right, well, it should have been, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of games since that probably have taken up that space or, you know, or maybe it's too mm -hmm. similar to now to approach it that way. But, um, but I remember when we were writing, we we're like, are we writing a movie or a video game? Yeah. <laughs> what is this? Uh, so yeah, but I know I'm excited. And then I don't know if I should even say this, but somebody's doing novelization of the movie. Oh. And then it was uh, suggested to me, you know, someone wants to do like, um, what do you call them? Where you riff on an idea in, in subsequent novels, like all the Star Trek novels or Star Wars novels, oh, but okay. kind of right, like franchise yeah. novels. I was yeah. like, yeah, sure. I mean, that's, it's wonderful. So you, it's so exciting. I mean, we had, you know, the lowest of expectations for the movie. It was made with friends for the mm -hmm. most part um, in this it wasn't exactly a student movie because it was made by professionals with, you know, a, a budget, um, not mm -hmm. a big budget, but with, a, you know, a shot on 35 millimeter film. But it was made with the Canadian Film Center, which is like Canadian equivalent of the American Film Institute. So it was that kind of very small scale thing. And never in our wildest imaginings did we think this film would travel across the world and yeah. You know, that I would be having a conversation 25 years <laughs> later with anyone sure. about it. So it's it's so gratifying. It's such a lovely thing. And I, for anyone out there trying to do this, I, I really feel like the lesson is when you work with friends, it's the most wonderful thing because you share in the success. You know, it's, it's just shared experience. Yeah. So for us, um, it just always feels good because it's, you know, it's like we... Our little, Hell yeah. yeah, our little kid make it. Yeah. Hell yeah. Sean, we got to go make something. Yeah, straight this, up. Right? I was about to say, what the hell? <laughs> Sean, Sean and I, Sean, we've been talking for yeah. too long, you know, about doing things. We just need to do things. Um, So, you know, to go, it was, it was interesting when I asked you about your universal monsters that you were, uh, you said it, you know, kind of, if, if you had to pick one, Frankenstein was the one that you lean the most towards. I, I want to talk about Spice, Spice, Splice, really quickly with you. Um, Splice is a very interesting film, especially when, you know, science evolves so fast, it feels like, and technology evolves so fast, it feels like. So for a film that came out in 2009, talking about genetic engineering and things of that nature, um, you know, are you are you surprised to see i guess continued relevance in it uh even you know 10, ten plus years later um in terms of the things that you're talking about in that film still being relevant in today's society does that make sense no first of all yes it makes absolute sense and i'm not surprised in the least and what surprised me was i had originally written that film to be my follow-up to q and I actually came quite close to making it as my second film 10 years before wow, okay. the version that you've seen was made. So 
Um, and when I couldn't make that happen, uh, I just kept thinking someone is going to do the genetic Frankenstein movie. I mean, it's mm -hmm. so obvious. Mm -hmm. Someone's got, so I'm, I just assumed like, well, my new movie is never ever going to see the light of day because someone's going to trump it. And they never did. And I couldn't, it was astounding to me. It's like so natural. And I find the field of genetic engineering intensely fascinating. I mean, it, it yeah. will, I'm sure, evolve into its own subgenre, movie subgenre, because there's so much, and I guess it has already, really, but there's just so much to mine there. And, and the real world science is about as weird or crazy as anything in my movie or anything else that you might see. Um, there certainly yeah. has a potential to be. And, and I did quite a bit of research on that film and spent time with geneticists. And in fact, in writing it, I, I was consulting with a geneticist. And every time I would make some absurd, crazy suggestion of like, well, what if the creature does this or this happens? He'd be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that could happen. You know, it might be a long shot or whatever, you know, and the, way, and the timeline that you're presenting is probably unrealistic. But basically, yes, it could happen. So it's just, it, it's just, it's endlessly fascinating to me. So, so sorry, very long-winded answer. I am not the least bit surprised that it's yeah. become relevant. It will become more relevant because the you know technology will continue yeah. to become more prevalent and um, uh, and important in our daily lives. And they're just going to do wilder and crazier and weirder yeah. things. Oh yeah, it's so it's so insane to think that like you know the horror genre is one where it's all about pushing boundaries and about doing you know the things that are subversive but it's like you know trying to trying to make a horror movie where you're like this is you know crazy out there and it's it's so outlandish and blah 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 and like not that that was your intention but like you know that's normally the the idea in horror and then reality is so close to it you know so quickly i just it reminds me of like the movie don't look up where they're you know satire being so close to real life where like months later that movie's been out and real life is just basically recreating yeah. the movie for them um it's it's so insane that that then that can happen uh, especially with sci-fi well, films too yeah. the um the i i feel like a a reoccurring theme in horror forever is always going to be the the horrors of of science like technology and, and just man's involvement obviously in in, in mm -hmm. doing those things because we're a mess and the more powerful that we get <laughs> the scarier things get um we could honestly jump into, we could have a whole episode about Splice, I feel like, uh, but we, we have a few things that I want to touch on. Um, you talked about, uh, we, we talked a bit about kind of letting other people take on your work and uh, and how you're excited to see that and to kind of let things go and let other people bring ideas to it. So I kind of want to flip that and ask you about what it's like working on other people's project or with other people's babies. You've worked mm -hmm. on several shows and, and with characters that are are known to the world, things like Hannibal and, and such. So I just wanted to know what it was like or what it's like when you're, yeah, when you're working with, with material and property like that. Well, you know, the TV thing is, is interesting because I entered it out of desperation um, at a point where it was just becoming very difficult to get movies made and, or at least for me, but for everyone, it became a, what happened, the market, the, the way I made movies, which was, you know, independently, um that marketplace shrank radically um somewhere well sometime shortly after splice really because there was the uh, financial implosion and mm -hmm. anyway not that i don't want to get into all that detail but but it, 
basically drove me to TV. And I didn't really want to do TV because I had done a little bit of it before. Um, and I felt like, you know, as a director, it was really about time management sure. mm-hmm. more than a very creative thing. And, uh, and which is not my forte. So feel that. But what had happened, of course, in the interim was TV had evolved. And, and it was starting to become in some ways more interesting than movies and more cinematic. And there was a need, a desire for film directors at that mm-hmm. moment. And I think I got very lucky and I just sort of walked through the door just before it shut because everybody yeah. wanted to do, after I walked in, <laughs> it was like everybody in their you know, sister wanted to um, do TV because movies were so hard. And TV was becoming so interesting. So um, anyway, so I had, I'm sorry, there's a very long way of saying I answered it from a very mercenary perspective. Like I got to survive. I have to eat. I have a family to feed. Mm-hmm. Um, it ended up being creatively rejuvenating. <laughs> um, and uh, and that's partly because I felt unburdened from myself. And okay. I going into Actually, I'll, I'll back. I'll take one step back. Before I started doing TV for other people, I did a tiny little TV show of my own called Darknet, which was a horror anthology. It ended up on Netflix, actually, but it was made here in Canada, partly as a, with money um, from the government to do new media. So it was. It had this relationship with the internet, and we produced an internet component to it. But effectively, it was this. Um, horror anthology that was inspired by a Japanese horror anthology called Torihara, um, which was, anyway, I'm, I'm really digressing, but it, <laughs> it, okay. it, it, I won't go into the detail of what it was, but it was, it was almost like going back to film school. Like we, it was such a low budget and, and we just brought on a bunch of directors that we knew uh, locally who we liked and did this thing together. And so I, directed the first one but i was then a producer for the subsequent episodes and i it was kind of like a perfect crash course for me in in terms of how tv works and from that producerial perspective what i really learned was you know it's the directors who invest themselves in the work most who deliver the best product i hate using that word product but deliver you know the the best version of the show and so when i it came time for me to get on a show and do something. That's what I did. I basically said to myself, I'm going to put as much into this as I would my film, any of my films um, within the parameters of time available. And, but I accept that it is not mine. And that once I've done it, someone else, I will hand the baby yeah. over and I'm not gonna get upset about that. And and it was oddly freeing because I, um, First of all, I just didn't have any creative oversight. <laughs> and I kind of was allowed to go crazy. And uh, and then at the end of the day, it wasn't mine. So I didn't feel burdened by the, my own expectations on myself and some of the things that I carry into my own movies. It was, it was really like going into someone else's playground yeah. and playing with their toys. And that was really freeing. And then also to see what other directors had done with the material and right. you know learn from them, take what was good about what they did and then see where things maybe weren't as good and where I could improve. Anyway, it was just a very, and I did a lot. So it was very, that was the other thing, you know, when you make movies, you don't generally get to make a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And it, what it really felt like to me actually was a little bit what I imagined the golden age of Hollywood was like when 
you know, a director working in the studio system would, they wouldn't even edit their films. To a large extent, they would just go from one movie to another to another. Yeah. You know, just sort of be handed a thing and they'd have to direct Wild. it. <laughs> and it was a little bit like that. And it really, it made me more muscular as a filmmaker. It was like going to the gym and working out. And I, um, I felt like I got better at it. And then the resources were pretty much comparable to my movies, you know, in terms right. of, not as it wouldn't have quite as much time, but I would have more means yeah. available to me in terms of equipment and so on. And um, so it was really great. And then really the wonderful thing that happened was I fell into the um, uh, into the camp of Brian Fuller, who produced yes, and created cool. Hannibal. And Brian's just, a, I think, quite brilliant. And he would wrote these intensely subversive scripts. Um, how that was a network show is entirely... Hannibal is so good. Hannibal is so if, good. Yeah, if we want to just talk about Hannibal for the rest of, <laughs> if you have an extra four yeah. hours, Hannibal is, it's, it's I don't know, favorites. I don't know if you, you know, if you can do anything uh, to bring it back for yeah. us, but like, I just want to throw <laughs> that out there. If you can, oh. you know, spur something up because oh, we need it back. Oh, it's so, <laughs> oh, it's so nice. Well, I know Brian's always got it on his mind and it's just about somebody saying oh, yes, man. but, um, but yeah, it was a really, I kind of fell into this wonderful, it was very hard, by the way, to do, um, but it, a wonderful situation. And it, and I just, my aesthetic, everything really harmonized with that show. And um, and I really liked the actors. And yeah. It was really, really, really great. So, uh, and, and Brian, you know, is an intensely visual cinematic showrunner like he I, there, no question brian is going to direct something at some point soon like and he will do a great job because he's has that sense he's not a writer just a writer um but he also is the kind of showrunner who would who wouldn't dictate like he would strongly encourage and push you to do something special like you in fact you really i know certain directors on that show who were not invited back because when they shot something in a kind of prosaic quote unquote TV way, um, it was not acceptable. So yeah. Brian was really wanted to make, he wanted to make art and yeah. art movie, like a long art movies, basically what it was. So it was, mm -hmm. it, I was pushed to do things beyond maybe what I would do on my own, actually. Like it was a very aggressively creative environment to work in. And um, yeah, anyway, so, so all that is to say that <clears throat> that is what, that's the best case scenario of working on someone else's material where it kind of actually brings more out of yeah. you than maybe you would oh, left to your own devices. Wow. Great answer. Well, it's, it's so, it's so, yeah, right. And it's so interesting and it must've been great working with Brian as the showrunner because I know, I mean, I worked in post-production for um, a little over a year and it, it was always interesting because I've always been, you know, someone who wants to be a director or someone who's very, you know, I feel like, if you're in film, you know the directors, right? Like you know all the directors, but you may not know the editors or even the executive producers, or you may know a few, but it was always very interesting to see the people that were in the finishing process because it's like mm. the directors aren't coming in, unless it's a, a film, you know, the directors aren't coming into TV shows and finishing them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's it's executive producers or it's DPs or it's the, you know, those sorts of people. Um, so it's, it's great to hear that, you know, you have that, you had that connection with Brian while making Hannibal because then he's probably going in and finishing the show and, you know, able to continue your cinematic view of it that you were, that you had while directing it. If that 
you know. You could always trust that Brian would not cut anything that was cinematic. Whereas Amazing. other showrunners I've worked with who are maybe a little more meat and potatoes, you know, the first thing they'll cut is my clever transition shot. <laughs> <laughs> just because it's like, maybe you know, it's just not getting to mm -hmm. the point. Mm -hmm. But that's what Brian will preserve. So, um, yeah. So it, it was a really, it was a great situation to fall into. And then, um, but then, you know, after a while, I've gotten hungry to go back to my own things. And, um, no. Yeah. And you went and it's nice I, uh, to have the balance. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, you teased us about something you were writing. So we <laughs> can't wait to <laughs> yeah, see Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know. It's always it's always funny interviewing people because we just go on IMDb Pro and they're like, all right, what's in there upcoming under development? You know, because like, I don't know how much IMDb mm -hmm. knows, but it's always interesting to see those things. Yeah. But so speaking of, you know, we, we obviously know, uh, you know, um, got to let you go soon. But we, we I want to talk about something that's coming out. It's going to be very... Uh, fun to watch, and we're all, we're very excited for it. But is um, Del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, uh, which talk about a phenomenal uh, anthology of just wonderful filmmakers. But I don't know how much you can say about your specific one, and I honestly wouldn't want anything to be spoiled, anyways. But can you kind of talk about what it's like working on a you know Del Toro produced anthology, um, you know, and especially with a bunch of uh, phenomenal horror filmmakers as well. It was great. <laughs> I had the most one. I, I honestly, I had the most wonderful experience. I mean, I know Guillermo. I've known him for many uh, years, and he was a producer on Splice. Yeah. And he's everything. He's exactly. If you haven't met him, he's exactly what you'd expect. Um, and everybody falls in yeah. love with him immediately. Um, and he's a big, larger than life impresario of horror and the fantastic. Mm -hmm. And it's just always wonderful to be in his. In orbit and with all the people that wonderful people that he works with and i think he went to great pains to create an environment that was director driven and director friendly and i mean it's almost embarrassing in the way that the episodes are being introduced by him because he i don't know if i'm allowed to say this but he he makes a big deal of who's directing it like it's a very it's a very lovely space to be working in and I had some big asks like I number one said can I cast David Hewlett who is my lifelong muse and friend who's in the, most of my movies mm -hmm. and not coincidentally is in Shape of Water and um, Nightmare yeah. Alley so I yeah, thought exactly. maybe they would say yes uh, but he's not you know huge name um, but they said yes and and it's a it's almost a one-man show with David um, so uh, it was really great to be able to work with him. And and then I don't know if I should say, but I I don't think <laughs> I should say anything. But they, they gave me they gave me a few things that perhaps they shouldn't have. Okay. Like they were really great that way. And um it was made I know everyone on that crew too. We shot in it was that show was shot in Toronto. Oh I worked with ev everybody there. Um and I worked on the strain, which is, you know, yes. something Guillermo produced and some mm -hmm. Tamara Debrell, who's the production designer on that show and was nominated for an Academy Award for Nightmare Alley, did this. And it had been in discussion for a long time. Like I had, I mean, I'll, to tell you a funny story, I'm sure Guillermo wouldn't mind, was I was going to do a movie that Guillermo, Guillermo asked me to do a movie a while back, a werewolf film. And one day he said, let's go out to lunch. Let's go out to lunch. 
<laughs> I went to lunch. I said, I've got the good news and the bad news for you. Which do you want first? I said, well, give me the bad news. He said, I, you can't do the werewolf movie. I want to give it to a Mexican director. I was like, okay. What's the good news? He said, oh, I have this anthology horror show I'm doing. I want you to do an episode. So I was like, okay, great. Uh, that was maybe three years ago. And they put me under tremendous pressure to write the script. They're like, you got to get this thing out. La, la, la. It's always the case. In a very short order, I wrote this thing. Uh, and then didn't hear back for a couple of years, um, <laughs> of course. And then out of the blue, just when I was intensely busy on someone else, something else, they said, oh, we're doing the show. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but the good news was uh, I was in touch with the cinematographer and the production designer from the get, I knew who they're going to be. They're very okay. close to them, so we could develop this thing, even as I was shooting this yeah. other thing. And um, and so it was. It was just like a great way to make it. And is there was a lot of like there was some engineering involved in this one. It wasn't like an, you know, it was very much out of the box in terms of how to pull it off. And um, yeah, so just great, great. And you know, Guillermo surrounds himself yeah. with the best people, best creature people. And I've got some. I must say, it's like I said. At the end of it, I said, that puppet really worked. That's the first time it's ever happened for me. And he said, me too. <laughs> I was just surprised, really? So it was a really like, they, I, had a, I had a fantastic creature, more than one. Um, so it's just, yeah, it was really, really, really great experience. And, and, I'm, and unlike a lot of TV, you know, I'm intensely involved with everything and the finishing of it, the visual, everything goes through the directors, music, you know, visual effects, mixing, everything. So, uh, yeah, and I, I have not seen any of the other episodes, but I have heard that they're all great, like I, from, you know, other uh, impartial sure. sources. So I, I, I am high expectations. I cannot I am wait. so yeah, excited. I am, I am like, <laughs> ah, jazz hands in it over yeah. here. <laughs> we'll we'll have to we'll have to circle back and talk about your episode, yes. uh, you know, once that once that eventually comes out. Um, well, Vincenzo, thank you again. You know, we, we can't uh, stress enough how much we appreciate you being on the show. Um, I know uh, we, we talked about Cabin of Curiosities. You kind of teased that you're writing something right now. Uh, do you have anything else that, you know, people should look out for? Or is it just, you know, biding our time until that next film comes out? No, I have. Um, I mean, it's all in the TV space, but I have simultaneous almost to the Guillermo show coming out. I have a, a series that I've done with Amazon called The Peripheral. Okay. Which I, I have a sort of long-standing relationship with William Gibson. I was trying to make one of his books years ago into a movie, the science fiction novelist William Gibson, and um, and this is based on one of his novels. And I brought it to uh, Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy, who do Westworld, and they were like, "Oh, we want to do this." Hell yeah! Um, seven years ago, <laughs> and now it's finally happened. So uh, that'll come out. Um, I don't know if I'm again supposed to say, but it, it'll in the not too distant future Keep an eye out. and um it's uh, is yeah. that is that um you know are you writing and directing or what's your are you directing that show i no just direct i directed half the episodes and uh scott smith scott b smith who you would know from uh, simple plan wrote uh most of it um okay awesome. and did a great job yeah all right on sweet oh we'll look forward to well, it well yeah vincenzo yeah. Yeah, we're we're very excited again. Thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll chat again once Cabin of Curiosities yeah. comes out. <laughs> Please uh, look forward to it. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, Sean.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Thank you guys again for listening to our interview with Woo-hoo. Vincenzo Natali. Um, <laughs> as always, if you guys uh, haven't already, follow us on Twitter at Mostly Horror, on Instagram at Mostly Horror Movie Night. Uh, Sean is on things as Hypocrite Inc. or Hypocrite dot Inc. If That's you look me. him up, you'll follow. You'll, you'll find him. I am Stephen is average on almost everything. Uh, f- listen to us a week early on Wondery Plus or Amazon Music. Or listen like a noob a week after our episodes come out on Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere that you can find your podcasts. Other than that, we'll see you guys next week. Goodbye. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Mostly Horror early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. <laughs> Judy Justice, only on Freebie. 